0: This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. My guest today is my good friend and colleague, Zach Slayback, an incredibly intelligent and overachieving young man uh, with whom I have the pleasure of working. Uh, We're going to talk today about education, aviation, and innovation, because I love alliteration. Uh. And uh, these are all things that Zach is very passionate about, very knowledgeable on, and I think brings a very unique perspective. So let's start with education. Zach, you are a success by any standard or indicator uh, used in the traditional schooling model. K through 12, you were a you know, phenomenal student, a member of all kinds of clubs and honors societies and all of the sort of trappings and um, accolades of a a success in the schooling system. In college, you went to an Ivy League school on a scholarship. Um, By all indications, things were going along swimmingly in schooling, Uh, but you're not too hot about this model of education. In fact, you are pretty radical in your criticisms of Schooling, both at the um, undergraduate and uh, undergraduate, higher ed as well as K through twelve level. So, let me ask: Considering how much you have to say about what's wrong with schooling, what drove you to be such a high achiever within that setting?
1: Well, I mean, there are a couple ways you can look at it, right? If if you're a high achiever, that signals certain things, which helps you later in life. It uh, can help set you up to go down certain paths. But uh, for me. To a very large extent, especially especially in K-12, right? College maybe a little bit differently, but especially in K-12, I, I went to a traditional public school. Uh, you know, we had to do the yearly exams put out by the state in Pennsylvania. It was uh, first called the PSSAs, and then they decided to put a little bit more of a propagandistic uh, spin on it and be like, oh, we're going to call them the Keystone exams because. We're the Keystone State. <laughs> yeah, we're oh. so clever. Um, which, thankfully, I never had to take any of those. I was almost out of the system by then. But all, for me, ultimately, it came down to freedom, right? So if you're a good student in these schools, people will leave you alone. <laughs> um, if, if they don't have to worry about you, if they don't have to worry that, oh, well, this person might drag down our average math score or our average reading score or now even, like, the average science score um, – then when you go to the teacher and ask them, you know, in like March, a few weeks before the exams, hey, you know, I'm going to go to D.C. for a couple of days or I'm going to, you know, uh, go work down in the newspaper room on my own project for a couple of days. Can I do that? They're more likely to say yes, right? And it's not that they're like, oh, yeah, go do whatever you want. It's that they have not they have no incentive to hold you back in that case. Um, and if they are, you know, if, if they really are – teachers, because they like helping students, they like helping, uh, see them grow to their potential, then they actually have an incentive to let you go do that. I mean, most of the teachers I knew resented the exams too. Um, so ultimately for me, it came down to a point of freedom. If I, if I could give them no incentive to hold me back, then I had more freedom in the classroom Mm -hmm. from day to day.
0: So you told me recently that you really, uh, disliked your schooling experience Mm. but it it almost came as kind of a a, from the sounds of it when you shared it with me it's kind of a revelation to you so when you were in school let's say elementary middle school high school did you dislike it at the time were you conscious of that or only now as you've sort of made uh, the study of education and and different you know methods of education uh, a hobby and interest of yours is it just now that you read it and look back and say, oh, wow, I don't really like the way I was educated? Or were you cognizant of, of that, um, you know, dislike while you were in it? A little bit of both, right? So
1: I uh, I was cognizant of the fact that I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I knew that, you know, most of the stuff I was doing was just largely a waste of my time Stuff I already knew that I was being slowed down, or you know, I was being rushed along. People learn at different paces, right? And I've been fortunate to be somebody who learns pretty quickly. Um, but through much of like my middle school and junior high school and high school experience, um, you know, I was I was always the weird kid. I was I was like reading philosophy when i was in like junior high school
0: you still are the weird kid i, I know but <laughs> <laughs> um, you were reading philosophy uh philosophy in in junior high yeah uh, that, that explains a lot when i first met you you were 17 or 18 uh i was because i think you were, you were nice. still in high school correct? i might have been 16 you were senior. no whatever was it was junior you were able to grow a goatee and i wasn't uh so that was a little Still disappointing, but I'm trying. And, and I was at a seminar and I remember you raised your hand. You were the first questioner after the opening lecture of the seminar, which I gave. And, and your question was so deep and involving, you know, uh, questions about the methodologies of the social sciences and a prioristic, you know, versus a posteriori reasoning and I immediately was like, "Okay, I'm I'm outmatched. I'm in over my head. I'm supposed to be teaching something to these people." Yeah, so you were always the the odd one out, reading philosophy.
1: Yeah, my my favorite thing about that seminar though was uh, the fact that all these all these like 15 year old girls were so disappointed when you got up to be a speaker and then revealed that you not only have a wife but you have children. So
0: I can't help my boyish face Um, okay so oh yeah anyway (laughs) back on back on whatever whatever track we were on you were you were reading philosophy in middle school
1: well i mean so like i i was cognizant of some of these things right i i wasn't really focusing on like philosophy of education but i knew that i didn't like most of what i was pushed into um and also like i noted like a lot of my teachers really didn't like the standardization of the schools even even some of the administrators didn't um But for me, it was largely, like, I opposed No Child Left Behind. I opposed the standardized testing regime. Um, I... I I was always someone who was involved in music education. That was a very obvious area where I saw the incentive was for the school to just cut back and cut back and cut back because that's not tested at all. There's no way that you can construe that to be
0: tested. So you channeled your frustration towards kind of reform, altering the content of the schooling process. Right, right.
1: So it's not really like a revelation like, oh, I didn't like my schooling, Um, but it's more that – I was much more radical than I realized. You
0: didn't. You didn't like it for much more fundamental reasons than you were aware of at the time. Right. Okay. So, so when was this light bulb moment? When did you become kind of more radical and critical of schooling itself as a method of education? Um, you know, versus unschooling or, or much more student-directed, uh, individual-directed learning. When, when was that? The the switch flip. You know. Well, it was. It was really just the logical – it was the same way that I I
1: became uh, politically radical, right? Uh, It was just eventually I reached this point where I could extend my beliefs to their logical conclusions, and that might be a little uncomfortable, and it might make me more radical than, like, 99% of the population. (laughs) (laughs) I still, like – I'll get in discussions about, like, schooling with people who are by all means fairly radical politically – and like they'll be taken aback by something I say. And it's like, oh wait, yeah. I'm yeah. actually it's, really radical. It's
0: one of those areas of society that is almost never examined except through the lens of, hey, let's reform the content, let's change essentially or the amount of money spent or let's um, make schools more oriented towards schooling. Yes. Let's make let's make them more authoritarian. Yeah, more need- more efficient in their control of the human widgets you right. know inside. Which is really strange. Even from people who have a very individualistic, anti-authoritarian bent to them, I think schooling is is sort of excluded from the kind of analysis we give to um, governments. You know, people who are really opposed to surveillance, for example or nanny Mm -hmm. state regulations against, you know, what kind of soda you can drink. They're perfectly comfortable with children going to schools, which are essentially, um, you know, prison-like in their level of surveillance and very controlling in They're prison-like in more than one way. (laughs) You know, I mean... It's just it's interesting. Why do you think schooling is so much less examined than, say, government as a whole um, by people who are skeptical of central authority and and control of the individual?
1: I mean, I think there are a couple ways you can look at it, right? It depends on like how how intellectual you want to get with the the individual who opposes it um, who or who doesn't oppose schooling, right? So you can pick up like a copy of Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom and he has a whole chapter in there where he's like, yeah, you know, we we need schools, but we need school vouchers so that we don't have like these negative neighborhood effects of uneducated citizens or even even Murray Rothbard, you know, Murray Rothbard's one of these people who's like, well, the government shouldn't be providing for schools, but children need to learn certain things. And these are the certain things that I arbitrarily choose as a philosopher king. But I think, too, it's it's. Without, without sounding conspiratorial, it's one of these things where people just grow up with it around them. They grow up with it from a, from their earliest memories. Some of their earliest memories are probably in preschool or like right before preschool. And then they go through it for a good 15, 20 years. And it's something that's really difficult for them to just move outside that paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, for me, ultimately, what really pushed me over the edge would really really push me over the edge. I, I was, I realized it, reflecting on this more. I was even much more radical back in middle school and junior high school and high school about this. I, I recognize that school buses are like prison buses, right? <laughs> Except they're painted yellow.
0: Um, <laughs> and I always have to wait behind them at the stoplight. It's terrible.
1: Oh, uh, I hate them in so many ways. Um, they're uh, they're the worst. They're the worst manifestation of schools. Uh, that's that's actually not true, but they're pretty bad. Um, they're considerably worse than people give them credit for. Uh, but for me, it was a the intellectual connection, uh, when I kind of became like this radical, radical, not only unschooler, but deschooler, is when I saw that schools are the ultimate example of what F.A. Hayek called constructivism, right? This idea that society can be organized and planned, and that if we just had the right information, that we could just solve all the problems of the world. It's kind of like this Venus Project idea, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That, If we just had the information, then things would be right. And schools treat people, not only are schools planned like prisons, like you noted, but they treat people in this sort of like weird psychological way that they should see the world and the problems of the world as things that if they just have the right information, they'll be able to solve. I remember, I remember in high school, uh, you know, people walking up to the teacher, me even on, on certain occasions and asking them like, do we have the right information to solve this problem? Because occasionally, you know, a teacher would leave out um, one or two pieces of uh, of data, uh, so you wouldn't be able to actually answer the question without that. Because you are just supposed to plug it into a formula, Hmm. and once it's through the formula, you can then write the answer. And even writing is judged in this way. The rubrics on which writing uh, is judged in 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 standardized testing regimes, especially, are incredibly formulaic. Uh,
0: You know, I want to ask you in a second the difference between unschooling and deschooling, but. I just can't help but think this. I get this mental image of, you know, in Rocky IV, Ivan Drago. Wait, you haven't seen the Rocky movies.
1: I've seen Rocky.
0: How can you call yourself an educated? There should be a school that forces you to watch the Rocky movies. It's terrible. Uh, Rocky Four, IV, Ivan Drago, right? The Soviets, they, they treat his physical body... As this thing that if you put it in the perfect environment, the growth and development of the physical body can be fine-tuned and perfected to be exactly, you know, a certain way that it it needs to be. And that's almost the way that schooling, that approach, that constructivist approach, treats the growth and development of the human brain. Right. So, I mean, you know, here we can't really imagine. What if we put all of our kids in these, you know pressurized chambers and gave them specific amounts of everything and it was all the same trying to trying to get their bones and their sinews and their muscles and joints and everything to I, I, grow I mean, exactly right. That's that's, Hux- that's kinda how we treat the growth and development of the brain. That's
1: Huxley's dystopia in Brave New World, right? Yeah. Where the children are the children are actually like spawned at, at spawn at birthing centers. Right. And then they're schooled up through, you know, adolescence. Um, even the idea of adolescence is something that is a consequence of us just extending schooling over the past century or two. Compulsory and standardized, especially standardized schooling, but compulsory schooling. People, you asked me a minute ago, like how people don't question this, and it, it's it's kind of mind boggling to me because historically, it's really a quite a recent development. It's very new. <laughs> it's yeah, about a century old. Especially,
0: that? especially the you know schools, especially standardized schooling. Yeah, schools have existed for you know probably forever. Uh, mm-hmm. It's some form of hey, here's a place where a couple really knowledgeable people on certain subjects are. You can go and learn from them, particular things. But uh, standardized schools, public schools, compulsory education, very, very new. I mean, in America, it was, what, uh, the late 1800s when public schools – After you know,
1: Horace Mann brought it back from uh from First Germany. emerged.
0: And, and, and it was not a problem of, oh, people don't know enough. People are illiterate. Uh, the literacy rates were, were great. It was they're, – they're not standardized enough, you know. Um, it's, um,
1: it's a consequence. It's an outgrowth. It happens the same time. It's interesting. You, you'll read these – these histories of, um, you know, Thaddeus Russell is actually really good on this stuff. Uh, you'll read these histories of like the early 20th century and how there's this scientific dogma in America and uh, in, in most of the West in general. But it's, it's that science is almost brought to be a religion. If we just knew everything and just planned everything correctly, it's, it's the same time that communism rises in uh, Eastern Europe, right? In Asia. Um, if we just knew the right things, we could plan society. And the idea of compulsory schooling is one of these things like if we could just isolate enough of the variables early enough on, we could just plan, get things working the way we want them to work.
0: Uh, reminds me of Adam Smith, the, the planner who sees people as the man of system, as pieces on a chessboard, forgetting that they have uh, wills and intentions of their own. Um, so you mentioned that you are more than. An advocate of unschooling, you you think there's a need for deschooling? Can you define and describe unschooling and deschooling, and what you mean by those? Uh,
1: yeah, they're both they're both relatively broad, but I view one as being more as a uh, a method, and the other being a goal. Uh, unschooling to me is just the idea that you don't need to impose uh, plans and structures on individuals for them to uh, become educated. So. There's a difference between, like, homeschooling and unschooling. Legally, they're usually the same thing, but homeschooling in its most, uh, you know, its most pure form is it includes some sort of curricula. It includes the parent actually working as a schooler, as an instructor, as a teacher, um, or some sort of curriculum based online. There still is an element of the child ne- needs to know X, Y, and Z, and we're going to make them learn X, Y, and Z. Right. Uh, we might nudge them into it. We might not be nearly as authoritarian as a compulsory school may, but we're still going to make them learn certain things.
0: And, and I can tell you, uh, growing up homeschooled and starting out you know, homeschooling my kids, that it's very, very common for homeschoolers to, in practice, look a lot more like unschoolers, uh, whether they want to or not, just because you find that it's, it's a huge challenge and it's not that fun and often not that effective to try to force your kids into a really rigorous uh, curriculum.
1: Yeah. So unschooling then is essentially, legally, it's, it's homeschooling in, in most jurisdictions, right? But it's letting the children determine the outcomes of their education, the ends to which they, they strive and, you know, most people, when they imagine this, they just think it's, like, pure chaos. They imagine children running around like crazy and, like, uh, the mother pulling their her hair out, which might happen to every now and then. That but also
0: happens with kids who go to school as well. It happens to a <laughs> That's just <sense>. called parenting.
1: <laughs> um, but but children are astonishing astonishingly good at learning, right? Human beings are naturally curious creatures. Uh, Aristotle got that right uh, before he went on to argue for slavery. Um, and... <laughs> If you let people to their own devices and you give them the freedom to discover what they want to learn, they'll learn it. They'll, you know, they they may spend every day running around outside, but they'll learn things running around outside. They might spend every day down at, at the lake fishing. You know, Daniel Greenberg, the founder of the Sudbury Schools, uh, in one of his books goes into how one of the children there just fished every day for like several years but then he became a computer whiz and you know he was very well he was very well educated with everything that's connected to fishing
0: what's interesting is it's it's not that there aren't a lot of things that are really important for people to learn and that some of those require you know discipline and, and focus it's that the relative value of an hour spent learning something that you have no interest in versus an hour spent learning something you're choosing to learn because you're passionate about it right. is so different. I mean, most of the things we think of as basic, you know, basic uh, knowledge that's important, like reading, writing, basic math, those can be learned. I, I remember John Holt, kind of the grandfather of, of homeschooling in a way, um, has done, had done several studies on how many hours does it take to learn you know, most of the things that we think are valuable. And most of them can be learned in like a couple dozen or maybe a hundred or a couple hundred hours Maximum, even really complex and difficult things, if you're motivated and interested. But if you're not, yeah, it's going to take like ten years to teach somebody. If you, you know, so so the the level of intensity with which once somebody decides now I want to learn about X, they will go at it so intensely they can often learn it much much quicker.
1: No, there's there's a great line in uh, and this is a good seg into what deschooling. Yeah, is, I was going to bring it back to there. But there's a great line in Ivan Illich's little book Deschooling Society where he says. Uh, that most learning is actually a consequence of, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, but most learning is the consequence of being actively engaged in something you choose to be, that you choose to be engaged in, that you find meaningful engagement in, a meaningful behavior. Um, if I learn math because I am really interested in something that requires me to learn math, there is a greater likelihood of me becoming much more educated in math than if I learn math because somebody sits me down, and makes me do worksheets with some contrived way of doing long division on it. Mm-hmm. Um, deschooling is, is a bit more of a, is a bit more of a broad term for an, a goal or an end that I think is really important. So I think that there is something that's a consequence of going through lots of schooling. Um, and I, I call it the schooled mind or the schooled individual. And it's it's a person who waits for assignments. It's a person mm-hmm. who waits for due dates, doesn't create them themselves, waits to be told what to do, waits for the next way that they can level up in the process. They they don't see the world as uh, you know having ebbs and flows that come naturally
0: through your life. They
1: they view it as very truncated, as a ladder to be climbed. Or, they don't or, know why they're lo-
0: they're climbing it, or as something that they they can create as they're moving through it, that right. they're sort of creating you know, in the process. It, you know, it's interesting you said before, um, traditional homeschooling has a lot of structure, whereas unschooling, it's up to the, the child. And I think that the thing that people often do mentally, they get scared, they think, well, people need structure. And I would agree with that. I would say, in fact, the need for structure in an individual life is so important, it's too important to allow it to come from someone else, to allow it to come from an authority or a teacher or a parent. Children and and adults alike don't just need structure. They need to be able to create structure for themselves. And we've seen so many times with a lot of young people we interact with, those who need structure but don't know how to create it for themselves. And when they're put in a situation where they have flexible hours and they're judged on the, the value of the product they create rather than the time they clock in or the rules they follow, they really suffer and struggle because- They want structure but have no ability to create it for themselves. And so this is not about an unstructured life. It's about being the one who creates your own structure.
1: The way that I like to phrase it when I write about this kind of stuff is impose structure versus structure or individual structure. Uh, When structure is imposed on somebody, the structure that the individual themselves would create for their life has to be kind of melded to that uh, Mm. imposition.
0: Reminds me of – Ludwig von Mises is a great line about uh, economies. He says, the more the state plans, the more difficult planning becomes for the individual. So it's not that planning is bad, it's that individual planning is what's needed, but the more those plans become centralized and top-down, the harder it becomes for those individuals to right. have their no, own. Right. No, I mean, th- this is this is
1: that that's a statement about political economy, but it can actually be a, a statement about personal philosophy or existential philosophy. Um, so de-schooling to me is, is this process that through which both the individual and institutions, whether that it's a broad institution like society or an institution like a company, uh, tries to create their own meaning through life. And they view life as something that they can create their own meaning uh, in. Hmm. It's it's a really difficult process for somebody who has gone through 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of, of very structured schooling. Like a
0: detox program. It's
1: essentially a detox program, right? Um, I mean, I, I've seen... Uh, Jacques Ellul in his his book, Propaganda, has a a line where he says that when you remove some sort of system that a person identifies themselves very closely by, it's not going to – they're not just going to be like, oh, I can create structure for themselves. They're going to need years of intellectual and spiritual development and growth to be able to actually create that structure for themselves. Mm. Deschooling is something that takes – that for me, I I consider myself to be going through a deschooling process – and it's, it's something I don't think I'll ever be done with. And I don't ever want to be done with it.
0: Those, those self-management muscles can kind of atrophy and, uh, it takes a long time to, to get them back. It reminds me of a story from one of the, I don't know if it was the original Sudbury school, but one of those modeled after it, um, where a bunch of kids came in after having traditional schooling and for, it was like weeks, I think, where they just sat there waiting to be told what to do and none of the parents there, um, would tell them what to do cuz that's not the way that those schools work. And it took them it took them weeks before they started actually believing no one's going to tell me what to do and now I have to figure out what to do with my own time. Yeah. And that and, was a challenge. And this I think this manifests this manifests
1: for everybody, right? It, it manifests either you can either embrace it through the process of de-schooling uh, or you can let it become a crisis. And this is what most people have when they have a quarter life crisis. They go through, I, I, they go through sixteen straight years of schooling, if not more. Then they're thrown out into a world where structure isn't imposed, where structure has to be built by the individual, by a person. E- even as much as institutions try to impose structure, people are naturally unstructured animals. So they have a quarter-life crisis. They might go to graduate school. They might go get, uh, they might travel, find themselves in Europe or something like that. Go backpacking somewhere. And like they're, they're, there's value to be gained from each of those. But why that person is doing that for a lot of people is because they don't know what else to do.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So let's – I want to move on for – I just want to briefly talk about our other two topics. But before we do, um, what would you say to the parent out there who – hears this and feels like there's some truth in it, but it sounds a little scary, a little radical, and they don't know what to do. What sort of words of advice or encouragement would you give them to to kind of take that next little step? Um,
1: the first thing I would say is that it, it is scary. Uh, it's scary for me as somebody who's de-schooling myself. And I, I think it's scary for anybody who as a parent wants to do this, but maybe themselves were schooled. But I'd say that that's okay. You know, Life is scary, but that's kind of one of the cool things about it. Uh, for actual resources that I would recommend, one of the, the absolute best on this is uh, a book by a psychologist at Boston College uh, named Peter Gray. And the, the book is called Free to Learn. And he's actually telling the story of himself being a parent and seeing his own child you know, suffering in uh, compulsory traditional schools and trying to find a better system for his child and he goes back and looks at the anthropological literature looks at the psychological literature on this stuff and sees like oh human beings are actually really good at creating structure for themselves they're they're really good at learning f- through playing so i would really recommend that resource it, it's the thing that kind of you know i knew most of these things myself intuitively but it kind of presented the evidence that i could use as fodder hmm. So I really recommend it. It's a phenomenal book, regardless. Really easy to read as well.
0: Maybe in a future episode we can talk about uh, one of the things that is sort of hinted at in that book, and in a lot of the work on um, you know unschooling and self-directed learning, it often comes with a little bit of a romanticism of the primitive past that I yeah. that I don't that I don't agree with at all. I think it's a little bit overdone. Um, but there's some interesting questions there about why that might be. We can we can maybe hit that another time. So I want to hit briefly on. Aviation and innovation. Now, aviation is a passion of yours. You come from a family of several generations of pilots, and you yourself are. Well, you have a private pilot license, or you're working on one. Uh, I'm working
1: towards it. Okay.
0: If I got up in an airplane with you, would you kill me, or would you be like know how to fly and land? And I would probably not kill you. <laughs> that is not very encouraging. <laughs> so, what is it about aviation that excites you and that you're passionate about? And do you feel it's a struggle to keep that a part of your life given all the other things that you spend time on both personally and professionally? Where do I start? Um,
1: Aviation, I think, is one of the greatest examples of human innovation. It's something that itself is actually really quite young. It's only about 100 years old. uh, And we've seen great advances in it though i think we can get into a minute why i think I, we haven't seen a lot of advances recently in it but it, it's human beings actually living up to greek mythology right it, it, mm-hmm. where we essentially all can be icarus and hopefully we don't fly and get a get burned by the sun <laughs> but we can it's something that if you talk to your ancestors like five generations ago they would think that you're a witch we're engaging in. <laughs> I can get on a plane. I can drive to the airport right now, and I can get on a plane. I can be in San Francisco by this afternoon. Yeah. That's absolutely amazing. Thousands of miles. Normally, a, a, three, genera- three four generations ago, uh, that would take weeks. Somebody would probably get dysentery and die along the way. We would be attacked
0: by natives. <laughs> I remember uh, that old game, the Oregon Trail. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, you put the headstone, you know, Bob has died. You know, he had dysentery. Yeah, that was... It was quite sad, but no, that, that, was what a, that was what a cross, you know, continental trek used to be.
1: Right, I don't have to worry about getting dysentery, being attacked by natives, and like maybe having to eat the rest of the people in <laughs> my party in the Rocky Mountains when I fly to California. You don't, have to, you <laughs> you don't <laughs> have to go, go
0: rabbit hunting and ford the river on the way. Right.
1: Yeah. No, I mean it's it's. It, I could go on for I could go on for quite. Well, a bit well of so so why cool do
0: I hate commercial air travel so much? Why do I feel like it's so much worse than it could be? Am I am I just being picky, uh, or is there something there that is holding back this industry in a major way. Oh, there's definitely something holding it back.
1: I, I think that it's, it's a, everybody likes to talk about, oh, well, you know, deregulation of the airlines. The the deregulation of the airlines, that's one of people's favorite, like, dirty words, deregulation. Well, it was pretty
0: much just price deregulation, right? It, it, it was it was
1: largely route deregulation, right? It right? made tickets um, cheaper. Both. Uh, okay. So how, in short, what it kind of did was, if an airline, if one airline served a route, let's call that route, um... Pittsburgh, Jacksonville. Another airline couldn't serve that route before deregulation. Okay. So that's why you had all these airlines like Allegheny, Piedmont, um, PSA, all these different little airlines that were largely regional airlines. So if I wanted to fly within the Alleghenies, I would probably fly on Allegheny so Airlines. Each
0: route was a monopoly for a particular company. Right. Um, so that was deregulated. Then but after he-
1: deregulation, you saw all these airlines merge together. So uh, Piedmont and Allegheny
0: and a couple okay. others eventually became US Air. Uh, which eventually became U.S. Airways. So, I mean, today, what, what is the status of the regulation? Let, let's say I wanted to, you know, open a new airline and have routes anywhere I wanted to at any kind of pricing. Um, I mean, what are the... Are there barriers to entry in the industry that make it hard? Or is it that all the flight paths are have to be approved by the FAA? Is it what What is the thing that makes it um, so that it, it hasn't kept up in terms of innovation? There's a lot of
1: things that go into it. Um,
0: Maybe five minutes isn't enough time to get into all of them. No, I mean... <laughs> give it, us the give us the most egregious.
1: Uh, I mean, that would be hard to do as well. They're all pretty <laughs> egregious. They're, I mean, let's, let's talk about innovation in aviation, right? There's two ways that we can look at it. We can look at it as innovation in the blunt technology, like what goes into the airplane, and we can look at it as innovation in the business model. And I want to look at both of those, right? Okay. Uh, in technology, the only real innovation, real sustained innovation that you've seen... Within the airplane itself, in the past half century, you know, we can talk about the materials that go into it. Like the Dreamliner is uh, is not uh, aluminum. Uh, the wings aren't aluminum, like uh, older airplanes are. They're actually made out of some sort of like carbon fiber. Um, that's the the Boeing seven eighty seven that's actually built here in Charleston. Um, and that's, that's a bit of an innovation. There's some really cool implications of that, but the really sustained one that you see across the industry is the addition of uh, winglets or sharklets on, on the ends of wings. Hmm. So what that does is it reduces drag on the airplane. So some of the older airplanes, some like the older 737s, some of the 757s you see around don't have these. So what happens is that when the, when the wind goes under and over the wing, at the very tip of the wing, what happens is it creates a bit of a vortex, hmm. which creates drag on the wing. Uh, and eventually means that the plane doesn't fly as quickly, has to use more fuel. It's largely a fuel efficiency uh, thing. So when you add these winglets or these sharklets to them, uh, you know, one of the major airline producers calls them winglets. The other one calls it shar- uh, sharklets. They're the same thing. Um, what what happens is that it breaks that vortex. So it reduces drag on the plane. That's a pretty, that, that's a pretty significant uh, innovation when you look at how much fuel airplanes and airlines yeah. have to use. Um, the other one I would say that isn't a sustained innovation in technology is uh, supersonic flight.
0: Yeah, so wh- why can't we go, like, you know, five times faster yet? Regulations, in short. The Concorde, look,
1: the Concorde was an airplane that actually did that, right? Was
0: it Was it a, I mean, it's been discontinued, right? Right, right. Wh- why was it discontinued?
1: Uh, there are a couple of reasons that you could look at it. Most people would say, oh, it was unsafe because there was an incident where it took off. I, I think it was in New York. And a panel from an older airplane, <laughs> from a piece of actually older technology taking off in front of it, uh, hit the plane, and the plane exploded and killed everybody on board. Whoa. Um, <laughs>
0: that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's awful. Yeah, uh, that's awful. And but that, but that it, was wasn't, it wasn't something wasn't something. That was the PR the, thing that did it in, right? Was it unique, something unique about the Concorde that made it blow up? Or no, would that have happened to any plane?
1: That would have probably happened to any plane. What really did it in was the fact that what happens in supersonic flight?
0: Uh, You you, you go really fast?
1: Yes, you go really fast. Good job, (laughs) I I don't think I passed the test. There's a sonic
0: boom, right? Right, yeah. There's a sonic boom. As as a kid, I grew up near an airport in Kalamazoo, and they used to have an air show every year. And um, one year, I think it was an F-16, flew over, and I think it – I don't know what, if it broke the sound barrier or if it – it did something. It it caused a sonic boom. That's what happens, yeah. And I was standing in this field at the end of our, our block Literally, like right underneath this plane flying over because we live very close to the airport, and it it knocked me on my butt. It was I was like you know ten. I thought it was the most amazing thing ever. So yes, I know what a sonic boom is. Yeah, no,
1: I mean two points for me. In there, this is another area where regulation is horrible. You know, you get a lot of you know upper middle class people uh, who they hate airplanes, they hate noise pollution, so they'll try to regulate airports. Like that uh, the
0: Simpsons episode where Homer says, "Finally." <laughs> the airplanes are flying where they're supposed to be, over the homes of poor people. <laughs> so so there was a sonic boom like when, it, when it was near enough to the ground. That creates,
1: that creates noise pollution, right? And okay. And people who live in the cities where the Concorde would fly... Uh, London couldn't uh, they couldn't Paris. they just like
0: fly further out and further well that's what up they did but they... What,
1: but that actually ends up slowing down the plane okay, right so now you
0: have to wait till you're at so yeah what altitude. what could have
1: hypothetically been a, a three hour flight is now a four hour flight okay uh, and it doesn't make as much sense to invest in something a huge capital intensive project like the Concorde when you could just buy a seven sixty seven that will do yeah. it uh, so. It was largely people living in these areas who lobbied their local governments, like, "Oh, we don't want to hear innovation. We don't want to hear progress. You know, get <laughs> we, out of here." And you don't. see this today. You see this today. Let's let's take the example of. Uh, I
0: mean, that's not you know, it's not it's not too unreasonable to not want a sonic boom to to, to happen near you if it's like. Really
1: but it's miles away, industry. and it's not really. It, it's the same as when you're it's standing. It's not. Is it like?
0: Like, I it's not like it, what I, happened to you. Yeah, where well, no. it's like window. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No,
1: it's just something you would hear off in the distance, okay. right? Huh. Um. And this still happens even with uh, non-supersonic planes. There are – there's noise pollution regulations on airports, and usually that's that's measured by the volume of flights that go in and out of the airport in a given day.
0: Yeah, I remember they passed a regulation um, in the small Kalamazoo airport where I grew up that they couldn't uh, – flights couldn't take off or land after like 11 p.m. or something. Right. Where they used to be able to go any time of the day. Right. I mean, let's look at um,
1: – In Southern California there's an airport where a major airline wants to start doing international flights out of it and it's a pretty small airport. It's in the LA area and it's going to be really hard for that airline to get that approval not only because they have to get approval to fly international routes from the FAA uh, But that airport has to approve
0: a volume increase in and out of that airport So what if I want to open up my own airport a private airport and say anybody can come and fly from it and we're not gonna have any TSA Agents, we're not going to have any, any of this, you know, ridiculous security screening and all these other regulations. Um, is that possible? How do you define possible? Is it legal? <laughs> <laughs> um, it depends on the airlines you have going in
1: and out of it, and the kind of airport it is. If you're, if you're, if you're going to have like Spirit come in and out of, so let's take the example of uh, there's an airport in Pittsburgh, in the Pittsburgh area called uh, Arnold Palmer uh, Regional Airport. It's uh, one of the things that Spirit tends to do, they're a low-cost airline who, uh, if you, you you essentially pay for everything on the airline, it's a bare-bones kind of model, and that's how they keep prices so low. But another way that they keep prices low is that airports charge for every airplane that lands at them. Um, so it's cheaper for Spirit to fly in and out of Latrobe, even though it's technically like half an hour, 45 minutes outside Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. than it is for them to fly into Pittsburgh International Airport. But because, so it's this dinky little airport that essentially the only people who used it were air taxis and Arnold Palmer himself. Who is it is, is, a, is a private airport? It, it's a regional airport.
0: Okay. Uh, so
1: the it has but FAA I mean, approval to actually have airlines fly in and out of. Okay, it. Okay, so you
0: have to have FAA approval for the airport, yes. And you have to have the TSA uh, if you're going to have like an airline like Spirit. Because the airlines are required to have. If a you have airport. an air taxi or if you have uh, like a charter service, you don't have to have TSA. How big can a charter service be? Could I have a charter service that has 737s full of? Oh know? yeah, so you could so you could have. Essentially, a commercial airline that's classified as a charter service and can avoid all the security and everything. Well, it wouldn't be a
1: commercial airline then; it'd be a charter. It'd be service. a charter service, right? And but usually,
0: be... those are kind of like on demand or they serve specific. But could markets. you operate essentially on the same volume and, and business model and somehow be classified as a charter service? Uh, I'm not sure about the specifics of that. Okay. I'm just so. I'm waiting for you to save me from the pain of of. Aviation, uh, you know, commercial air travel by creating some new business model.
1: I mean, it can be done, and we can talk about the business model in a second. It can be done, but it's just such a capital-intensive project, right? Just leasing an airplane costs millions of dollars. Yeah. Um. And then you need you need mechanic crews. You need hangar airspace. Um. You need hangar space. Uh. You need all these different things that go into it. So there okay. ha- there have been some attempts at innovation in aviation recently. Uh, there were two services,
0: let's, this is a good segue into our final topic, right? What are the coolest innovations happening now? And what are the the next steps that you think are most likely and, and doable?
1: So there were two services that recently cropped up in the past year or two, uh, one called flight now F, uh, I think it was like F L Y T E now and the other called air pooler. And what they essentially did was they took the dead capital of just airplanes sitting around, you know, these pilots, Legal pilots, but you know they're, they're sometimes like doctors and lawyers, or maybe they're airline pilots who have a plane on the side for their own personal purposes. Uh, and you could essentially pay the service, which would then compensate the pilot it's for like flying you somewhere. It's like right. a
0: mistress plane if you're a pilot. You got a little little plane on the side, right? A little right. plane on the yeah, side. Yeah.
1: Uh, and they they tried marketing themselves. One of them tried marketing themselves as the lift of uh, of aviation, which I don't know why they didn't just say the Uber of aviation, but. Uh, the FAA came in, told them that they have to get all these uh, approvals and credentials to become a commercial airline. That they can't pay these pilots. They weren't even paying the pilots directly. They were essentially just compensating them for the gas.
0: They were just trying to allow average people to access these unused resources, right. private planes owned by you know hobbyist pilots or or whatever. Right. And the FAA shut them down. What um, was the logic that the FAA used to shut them down? Protectionism, just to, to protect the airlines from competition. They, I, I mean, did they cloak it in some sort of safety rubric? Or? Largely safety rubric. Okay. You know, uh, you have these
1: unqualified, un, un, you know, largely unqualified pilots out there, even though they're qualified by the FAA's own regulations. So if this pilot wanted to, like if I were one of these pilots, right, and I wanted to say, hey, Isaac, you want to fly with me to um, Atlanta today? Uh, I, I just want you to compensate me for the gas. And you're
0: only qualified to fly a much larger, more complex machine with a lot more people on it and a lot more risk involved. Right. You're not qualified. I'm not qualified to fly, qualified a, Cessna. To fly
1: right. a Cessna, right? Even though legally I am. Um, wow. It would be illegal. Uh, it'd be illegal for you to actually pay me to do that. If, if we flew to Atlanta and you're like, "Hey Zach, that, that was really nice of you. Uh, you know, you saved me five hours of time and lots of money. Uh, here, you know, have fifty dollars. Uh, go buy yourself like a, a nice meal." Um, so, if so if that, there were an FAA regulator standing there right then, they would probably suspend my
0: license. So Uber for airlines essentially – or Lyft for airlines yeah. essentially got shut down. What's, what's the silver lining? What's the most likely or maybe already in the works now innovation either in the technology or the business model that gets you excited? Uh, there are a couple ways that we can do this.
1: Largely, I, I really do think that there's a lot of innovation that isn't even on anybody's radar but that the barrier to entry into innovating in this industry is so high, either because of regulations or just capital uh, reasons. If you want to build your own airliner, you
0: have to compete with Boeing and Airbus. And that just won't fly. Uh, I, there's so many puns in, uh, this, in this topic. I, can't uh, no, I,
1: I, I always say, like, you know, uh, like, Airpool or Flight Now crashed and burned, and then I realize that that's probably kind of tasteless. Yeah, there's
0: some puns in this vein that we probably should stay away from. Uh,
1: but I, I really do think that further deregulation is going to be the best way by uh, decreasing the barriers to entry both in innovation and just in the industry
0: in now general. are there other countries that have much less regulated uh, aviation industries that could that could lead the way possibly in ways that it's, it's more difficult so here this in actually
1: States? this actually kind of segs into an interesting topic there's there's a
0: well we don't have time for another topic so let's, but there's, let's there's
1: there's a an you can you
0: can tease us with it and then we that will give us a reason to do another episode okay
1: together. let me just say it's illegal for international airlines to fly domestic routes in the United
0: States. Interesting. Um, Okay, so we've talked about education, aviation, and innovation. Um, Now I'm going to do what I like to do when we have disparate topics, although the last two definitely connected. I'm going to ask you to pretend that these all connect in a really – you know, clear, logical way, and there was a really intelligent reason that we chose these three topics. So now you tell us, what do these three topics have in common? How do they all tie together? Uh, well, I think that the ideal education regime,
1: which is largely uh, not having an educate a schooling regime, is something that can enable an individual to create their own path in their lives. Uh, it's something that essentially allows the individual the ultimate sense of freedom and independence, and if you've ever actually had the opportunity to fly an airplane, there's something immensely heroic about that act. Not mm. not heroic in the way that I'm like sacrificing or something like that, but heroic in the way that humanity can be heroic. Mm. You are actually building your own path. You the, roads roads are kind of cool, right? Uh, Trains are kind of cool in their own way. But But where
0: we're going, we don't don't need roads. roads. Or schools. Or schools, right. So it's a a sense of freedom from what holds you down. Right. I like it. I like it. That was well done. It sounded like we planned that. (laughs) My guest today has been Zach Slayback. You can find him at zackslayback.com. That's Z-A-K-S-L-A-Y-B-A-C-K.com. He also blogs weekly at blog.discoverpraxis.com. Zach, Thank you for joining. Thank you, Isaac.